Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Today, we are speaking with Megan Roberts, who is an assistant professor in the Division of Pharmaceutical Outcomes and Policy and the Director of Implementation Science in Precision Health and Society at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Her research focuses on evaluating and improving the implementation of genomic medicine. Sort of my path to my current job, when I look back on it, it maybe makes some sense, but at the time it felt like I was really kind of testing out a lot of different positions that were all sort of around a similar area. So um, the for me, I always had a really strong interest in cancer research and genetics. Um, my mom is a breast cancer survivor and we have a family history of cancer. So that was something that always really interested me. Um, and I think it took me a while to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with that interest in terms of a career, but um, it definitely was what got me started down the path that I'm on. Um, when I was in college, uh, I went to Davidson um, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, while I was there, I, I was thinking um, that I wanted to, to go into sort of the bench science, you know, do a bench science, work in a lab. Um, and so I was a, a biology major and I, I double majored with Spanish because I really enjoyed those classes. Um, I also had a, a community service, uh, like work study um, scholarship that I was involved in um, that also really shaped sort of my interests when I was in school. And um, through this program, I helped with a free dental clinic and I did a lot of mentoring in town. And um, when, uh, when it came time to picking electives for my Spanish major, I took a class where I taught elementary school Spanish and um, I just started to become really interested in issues around public health and social justice and really enjoyed the teaching and mentoring aspects. And so I started to question whether or not I really wanted to be in a lab setting and if that was really going to be sort of the best, best way to harness my, my interests and my passions. So. Um, as I was getting ready to graduate, I, I decided that I, I really wasn't ready to go into graduate school and that I needed to think a little bit more about what exactly I wanted to do. And um, because I had gained this interest in teaching and mentoring, I decided to do Teach for America. And I figured 
it would be a great way to give back, um, you know, two years towards um, teaching uh, because I had felt very grateful for the education that I had received. And I also thought it would be a great way for me to see if that was maybe a career path that I would want to go down. So I taught high school science actually here in Durham, North Carolina, and um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I liked teaching. I liked working with students, but um, the school where I taught was a, an underserved school, and it really sort of reignited my interest in thinking about public health and this intersection between um, our different sort of public systems and how they disproportionately impact underserved populations. And so um, I started to feel like uh, no matter how successful of a day I may have had as a teacher, it just felt like it wasn't enough for my students and their community. So I decided teaching probably wasn't gonna be the ultimate goal and I wanted to get into something that was a little bit more policy focused um, and also public health focused. And so um, I made a transition then uh, to switch out of teaching so that I had some time to think about, again, exactly what it was that I wanted to do because teaching is the hardest job I've ever had. It's the most time consuming. And I knew that if I didn't make a job switch that I, I wouldn't have the, the time or the space to really think about what the next step should be. So I, I gave lab science one last ditch effort and I worked at GlaxoSmithKline in a drug discovery lab. And um, one of the things that was great about this job was in some ways it was the complete opposite of teaching. Um, I went from, you know, being surrounded by at least 30 people at all times during the day to being kind of by myself in a, in a quiet lab. Um, and with teaching, I felt like every day was very different. With um, working in the lab, I felt like I had a routine and had sort of a, a really like um, set work schedule. Um, one of the things that was, was also great about this time was I, I had the ability to do some volunteer work while I was working there. And so I started working um, part-time as a volunteer for an organization called the Pretty in Pink Foundation. And I started volunteering there uh, really as a way to give back. Um, it, it's a, it's a um, nonprofit that helps women who are uninsured and underinsured pay for their breast cancer treatment. And so um, part of the reason why I gravitated towards it was my mom's a breast cancer survivor. And so um, that's really what got me there. But um, what sort of made me stay in that sort of space was I became um, really interested through those experiences in in how I could combine my interest in research, not in the lab, but actually um, doing something a little bit more applied and figuring out how to improve access to really important life-saving treatment and cancer prevention. Um, and so it was really that experience um, and sort of realizing that 
you know, definitely lab science for me wasn't going to be the right, the right path. Um, and it was, it was sort of, that was the final, the final pieces of information I needed to um, apply for graduate school. And so I decided to get my PhD in health policy and management at the School of Public Health at UNC. And um, when I got there, I was really focused in um, looking at uh, racial disparities in breast cancer outcomes and in access to uh, breast cancer care and prevention. And one thing that struck me was that cancer care and cancer prevention now is really targeted through the use of genetic and genomic technologies. And so I sort of shifted my interest a little bit towards, you know, really focusing in on, on this aspect. As cancer care and cancer prevention becomes more targeted through the use of genetics, how do we make sure that we implement it in a way that's accessible to all populations? so that we don't make health disparities worse, but we actually have the opportunity to maybe reduce them. And um, so that's, that's really where my research has focused. Um, after I graduated, I went to the National Cancer Institute where I did a postdoc. Um, so I got some additional training in sort of this intersection between genomics, cancer, and public health research. And then um, two years ago, I came back to UNC, and I'm a faculty member now um, at the, the School of Pharmacy um, at, at UNC in a small division called Pharmaceutical Outcomes and Policy. And so the division that I'm in is full of public health researchers who have an interest in um, figuring out how to improve um, access to adherence to um, treatment uh, across populations. Um, and so that's where a lot of my work is, um, thinking about how we can improve the implementation of um, genomic medicine, both for, for treatment purposes and prevention purposes. So that's how I got to where I am now. And I don't know if it would be helpful to pause here before I start talking about what I'm doing next, or if I should just keep going? Is there a preference in format, Lana? Uh, you can keep going and say what your day-to-day -day is life, and then we open the floor to questions. And that sounds good. So one of the things that I love about my job is um, that there are a lot of different things that I have to do for it. So um, as I mentioned, I, I have a real interest in teaching and mentoring. And so um, one of my, one of the core components of being a faculty member in the position that I'm in is that I mentor students and I teach a class. So every other year I teach a research methods class to um, pharmacy students and PhD students at UNC, which I really enjoy. Um, I also mentor a couple of PhD students and pharmacy students at UNC. Um, and I think that that's, those are probably some of my favorite parts of my job, um, working with um, other people and incorporating those students into the research that I'm doing to give them some hands-on experience um, so that 
you know, they can launch down their path of figuring out exactly what it is that they want to do with their careers. Um, the other main component um, of my job, and really the biggest component, is the research side of things. Um, so the type of, of research that I do, as I mentioned, is really trying to think about um, how we can better understand the way that genomic medicine and prevention is implemented into practice, and then thinking about ways that we can improve it. So building interventions or testing interventions to see if we can improve access to and quality of genomic medicine for patients. Um, what's really cool about this area of research is that I get to work with a lot of different people with different backgrounds. So um, my background is really more on thinking about the methods that we can use to answer questions about how something should be implemented into practice. Um, but I work a lot with uh, geneticists and genetic counselors and other types of methods people um, who have expertise in things that I hardly understand. Um, I also work a lot with pharmacists and and to me it's really fun because I get to learn from everybody on the team and um, really all of these research projects couldn't possibly be done by one person. Um, they need to be done by a team of people which is, um, is really fun. So what that means in terms of my day-to-day -day is I have a lot of meetings that now look like this. So Zoom calls with people on my research team to come up with next steps on our projects. Um, Zoom calls with uh, students who are working through coursework or working on projects and giving them feedback. Um, and then the other part of my day, which um, sometimes feels like a small part of my day, is actually having some time to myself to really think through what the next steps are um, in the research that I'm doing. And sometimes that includes a lot of writing. So either writing papers or writing grants so that we can get money to do our research. Um, and thinking about sort of on my own about these um, research questions that we're interested in. So um, I would say, you know, in a given day, probably about half of it is spent in meetings with other people, and the other half is, is spent responding to emails, giving feedback to students, giving feedback to collaborators, and just sort of thinking um, and, and doing uh, research uh, to a lesser extent, but um, probably one of the more exciting things that I get to do is actually conducting research and um, the type of work that I do, some of it is on the computer doing analyses, but um, I also do a lot of qualitative research. So that means um, going out and actually talking to patients and providers and uh, trying to get a better understanding from them about what some of the major barriers are for implementing genomic medicine. And we take that information and we can try to figure out if there are strategies that we can um, uh, employ 
to try to overcome some of the barriers that people face. Um, and so we can create these interventions that include these strategies and see if they can actually help providers or patients and their families overcome the barriers that they're experiencing. Um, and so that's another really exciting aspect of the work that I do um, as well. So I, I think that's probably a good place for me to, to stop and answer any questions you have. Um, so when you were teaching and then you transitioned to working at GSK, do you think it was hard to kind of go from one career path to another or was it a pretty smooth transition for you? Um, I think it was, it was, it was hard in that I, I think leaving teaching, it was a difficult decision for me because I knew that what I was doing there was really important. And I knew that, um, uh, there might not be other people who were as, you know, enthusiastic about, uh, high school science lined up behind me to take my place. So I would say in terms of the transition, sort of letting go, that was, was really hard. Um, transitioning to GSK, it definitely was a bit of a learning curve um, because I was two years away from college at that point and hadn't worked in a lab since I had taken lab classes. Um, but of course, you know, they, they knew that when they hired me. And so, you know, the first few weeks was really spent just getting re, you know, reoriented to what it was like in a lab and getting trained. Um, and I would say, you know, it took a, a couple of months before I really felt comfortable um, back in the lab. But fortunately, I had a really great boss and some good mentors at GSK that helped me sort of switch gears um, in back into the lab space. Thank you. And I just want to say that I think it's so great that you were teaching in Durham because I was born and raised in Durham. And I think there's, there's a lot of underrepresentation in like all the schools here. So I think that's really great. Oh, thanks. That's nice to see another Durhamite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a question. What was your experience like in Teach for America? That's something I'm interested in doing. So I just want to know like more about your experience and like what your day-to-day -day looked like. Sure. Um, so Teach for America, I, um, I'll, I'll just kind of explain a little bit about some of the processes behind it. So um, when I applied, um, you, you set preferences for geographically where you'd like to be. And so I, like I said, I was going to school in North Carolina and I kind of wanted to stay in North Carolina. So I picked, um, I think Charlotte, Durham, and, and Philadelphia as my three choices. Um, Philadelphia, because I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, but North Carolina, because I really wanted to stay in the state. And I ended up getting um, placed in Durham, and the eastern North Carolina region includes Durham, and um, you can get placed anywhere from Durham to very rural parts of our state. And so you preference whether you want to be, you know, how close you want to be to the triangle versus how, how remote you want to be. And then you also preference what grade you want to teach. So I actually think I had put down a preference for teaching elementary school. 
and I ended up teaching high school science, um, which worked out great. I ended up loving it, but um, uh, that wasn't necessarily what I thought um, I was going to be doing. So I would say one thing about Teach for America is you do have to, you know, you do have to be kind of flexible because you don't have 100% control over where you're going to end up or exactly what you'll be teaching. Um, the summer before you start teaching, you do a summer institute where you are taking classes and teaching summer school. Um, I did my summer institute in Atlanta and I taught um, middle school geometry during my um, my summer there. And it's really just to get you um, some initial experience in teaching and managing a classroom. Um, it was a pretty intense experience because it's a lot of work and, um, you know, you're, you're putting together lesson plans for a subject that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about geometry in like a decade. So it was, it was a lot of work. Um, and then you just kind of start. And so I would say like one of the, you know, one of the sort of scary things about being a Teach for America core member is you really are just thrown into it. And it's, I mean, it's so much work and it's, you realize it's really important. You know, you've got these kids futures and educations in your hands. And so it, it's, it's a lot of work. And I would say I've never worked so hard in my life. Um, that being said, it was also probably the most transformative experiences I've ever had. Um, I learned a lot about, um, about our educational system, about our, um, our, the way that our different, um, sort of state and federal systems work together. And that was really interesting for me. And I think important and gave me a really um, good perspective on sort of how the world works um, pretty quickly after graduating from, um, from school. I loved working with the students. Um, I often was frustrated with the adults that I worked with. <laughs> Um, because, you know, uh, teaching it, teaching you, you require a lot of support and at least in the school where I was, we didn't have a lot of administrative support. So that was often, um, a little bit frustrating. Um, but I, I really enjoyed the experience, um, in terms of the group of people that I taught with, I would say about half, maybe a little bit more stayed in education. Um, and I would say the remainder of us went into public health or law or medicine. Um, and so I think what you can take away from that is, you know, the great thing about Teach for America is if you want to stay in education, it's a great way to get, to get into teaching. Um, they place you in a school. They give you tons of feedback and mentorship on how you're teaching um, and if you end up not staying in education, it gives you a lot of school, a lot of skills and perspectives that are really useful to have, um, in a number of different careers. And I think, um, for those who didn't stay in education, there were experiences or things that happened when they were teaching that got them really passionate about, um, going into law 
and wanting to fix, you know, the way that our judicial system works or um, looking at, at the healthcare issues that their students and, and family members faced and really wanting to be in a healthcare setting where they could um, make a difference in that way. So um, I, I would say it's, uh, it was a really challenging um, experience, but it was also a really um, formative and um, sort of, uh, uh, it's, yeah, it, it was a great experience and something that I um, am extremely glad that I did. Um, what are some of the barriers or obstacles that you've noticed occur when trying to implement genomic medicine in a clinical setting? Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, so let me let me take a, a minute here to think. I'll give you maybe some examples um, from a current a current project that I'm working on. So um, one of the projects that I'm working on is to try to figure out how we can help a process called cascade screening. So once a person um, is diagnosed with a genetic cancer condition, and in this case, we looked at a, a condition called Lynch syndrome, which increases your risk of colorectal and endometrial cancer. Um, once you're diagnosed, your first degree relatives have a 50% chance of also having this syndrome. And so it's really important that um, individuals who've been diagnosed tell their family members so that that family member can then go to their doctor and get tested. And if they're positive, then they could also get special cancer prevention strategies and they could try to manage their cancer risk. Um, and so what we know is that um, this process of, of talking with family members actually doesn't, doesn't work very well. So typically about half of people who've been diagnosed tell a relative, and typically among those who do talk to their relatives, they usually only tell like one to two relatives, and that might not necessarily mean that every relative in that family who needs to know um, has learned about that condition. Um, so we, we set out to try to figure out what are the barriers that are making it really hard for patients and family members to have this process happen. And so we did interviews with um, both sort of within the clinical setting. So we talked to patients' doctors, their genetic counselors, um, administrators at the, the hospitals that, that patients go to. Um, and then we also talked to a lot of different patients and their family members. And we tried to sort of map what are the main barriers and then how can we create a resource or a tool that could help people. Um, one thing that we found was that um, genetic counselors and people that were providing results back to patients about their diagnosis of having a cancer condition um, a lot of those doctors are really busy. There aren't that many of them, and so they um, they don't have a lot of time in each individual visit. And they talked about the fact that they would love 
to be able to be more supportive of, of patients and help patients sort of with this cascade screening process. Um, but that because of the fact that they had so many patients to see, they had to prioritize taking care of the patient in front of them and then going to the next patient that's sitting in the waiting room. And so um, this was important because we also heard from patients, them saying that they wished that their doctors could help them more with this process. Typically what would happen is the patient would describe getting diagnosed with the condition and being told that it was important to talk to their family members, but not being told really how to talk to their relatives or what to tell them. Um, and so they wanted more help. Providers want to help, but they didn't, they didn't think that they had the time. Um, and so that was, that was one of the main barriers that we saw. Also, a lot of these conditions, these cancer conditions, they're really rare. And so um, a lot of times patients haven't necessarily heard about them and relatives haven't heard about them. And when you're talking about a genetic condition, it's really, it's complex information that you're trying to convey to people who may not have talked about genetics since, you know, ninth grade biology class. And so um, our main takeaways from a lot of the research that we did in this particular case is that there are gaps in the healthcare system's helping of patients and support of patients and their relatives in terms of planning and education and helping patients figure out how to communicate and connect their relatives to resources. Um, and we also heard that there just is a lack of uh, resources for, for providers and healthcare systems to do this um, in the absence of completely restructuring the way that we deliver healthcare. So what we've decided to do is we're creating um, a first sort of like a paper-based workbook, but the goal is to turn it into um, an application that patients and their family members can use to really plan that process of talking with relatives and then touching base with them about how that process is going and making sure that there are direct ways that we can get information about the genetic condition from the patient to the relative so that it's not all on the patient um, to share all of this information. Um, and we're also trying to include a little bit of uh, support from the genetic counselor, at least in identifying which, patient, which relatives a patient needs to talk with. And when we have relatives that we don't necessarily feel comfortable talking to, um, what are the alternatives there? You know, is there another relative that can talk to that person for the patient? Or could the genetic counselor or a nurse in that practice reach out directly to that relative on the patient's behalf? So that's something that, that we're currently working on. And um, it's been a lot of fun because now we're in the graphic design phase for the paper-based workbook. And that's something that I know nothing about, but it's been fun to pick out graphics and colors and all that sort of stuff. So it's another example of how um, I get to do a lot of random weird things that I never thought that I would really be um, involved in, but that are really fun and that I learn a lot about new stuff in.
Hi, um, my question was basically how, um, or did you, were you able to basically get your research project and continue it from GSK, or were you not allowed to? Like, how many research projects did you carry over to, like, now from your past? Yeah, that's a great question. So, really, when I, when I was working at GSK, the lab that I was put in, I was doing type 2 diabetes um, drug discovery, and so... Um, really what I did was like a sort of a 180 turn in a different direction. So when I went to grad school, I was no longer working, um, working in a lab setting. I was um, doing more of this like survey research, interview research, um, looking at secondary data, like from a patient's electronic health record. Um, so a lot of the work that I was doing when I was at GSK didn't, didn't directly translate into the types of projects that I worked on when I was in graduate school. Um, that being said, I still, I still do um, a little bit with GSK in that every now and then, um, you know, they have some uh, interest groups that uh, meet during lunch and uh, learn about different research topics. So I've gone back and I've actually talked to them about some of the public health research that I do. And they, we think about how it relates to their work. So for example, I gave a, a talk on disparities and, uh, and genomic medicine. And one thing that's really interesting is GSK, um, Actually, I think they own 23andMe, um, or at least they have. They use a lot of their their um, their data for different drug discovery products. And so, 23andMe is a. If you haven't heard of it, it's a direct to consumer genetic testing company. And so, we were talking about the representativeness of the data that they're using from 23andMe in the type of research that they're doing, and how that might impact. Um, the generalizability of the results that they get in some of their research. So even though I'm not directly doing or continuing projects that I did at GSK, um, there are definitely different sort of connections that still um, keep place, um, which, which I always, I always like. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that now you teach pharmacy students, and obviously your Teach for America experience really helped with that. But do you think other faculty have that kind of experience, or what? Or can they just kind of teach without that experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, there there are a couple of things. So when I was a graduate student, we. Um, in my program, we actually were required to teach a class or to take a class on how to teach graduate students. Um, and so I did get a little bit of training on how to teach when I was a, a, P, a PhD student. When I became a faculty member, um, I hadn't taught in a while. And so we have, um, at least at UNC and at most institutions, um, a Center for Faculty Excellence, which is essentially another place where you can go to get um, additional information on how to teach. Um, and so for me, a lot of what 
we learned in that class was review because they were things that I learned when I was in Teach for America. For other faculty, it was new. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, to be a faculty member, it's important to learn about how to effectively teach. But, um, and I think for me, having taught in the public school system makes that a much easier um a much easier task, but I, I definitely think that there are a lot of resources built within universities to try to give um, faculty and graduate students experience and training in how to teach. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, I had another question. So this is in terms of like you um, figuring out your path. So how did you come across opportunities and how did you like respond to them basically? Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot of times, um, a lot of times things happen by luck. Um, and I think uh, another, another thing that is important or was important for me was to sort of keep an open mind and to keep in mind that like, the next job that I take doesn't have to be the the last job that I ever take. Um, I think sometimes, um, especially when transitioning from college to that next job, you can feel a lot of pressure. Like this has to be the perfect job that's aligned with my my ultimate goal. Um, and if I don't, I'm going to get super off track. Um, and I think it's good to be purposeful about what experiences you pursue. Um, but I also think that you can learn a lot from those positions where things don't end up, you know, working out. So for example, both, you know, my first two jobs, um, teaching and working in a lab, neither of them turned out to be my, my absolute passion, but I was able to figure out what my passion was from those two experiences. And I got really unique perspectives from both of those so I think, um, you know, for, for me, it was sort of going into the job search process and thinking about, you know, what's going to help me sort of narrow and refine my interests, um, especially in those moments where I didn't feel 100% sure what it was that I wanted to do. Um, you know, if you know 100% what it is that you want to do, then just go for it. But not all of us are that clearly focused um, at right away. And I think that that's, that's totally fine. Um, I think the sort of luck part of it all is when I was leaving Teach for America, I, I really wasn't sure what job to take. Um, I knew that I wanted to eventually go back to grad school something health policy, public health related, maybe, but wasn't exactly sure what, um, and wanted to stay in the Durham area. And so I just kind of applied for jobs. And having a biology major, I thought, and being in the Triangle, where there are a lot of different pharmaceutical companies, I just sort of put my resume out there and ended up hearing back from GSK. And it ended up being a great experience. Um, it confirmed that I didn't want to work in a lab, but it um, it taught me a lot about 
the drug discovery process, which now that I'm at a school of pharmacy, oddly enough, is really useful. Um, and it also was a, a position where I had the flexibility to take that part-time job volunteering, um, which was another um, sort of pivotal experience for deciding what I wanted to do. Um, and even though I was doing really different research, um, I was still doing research and thinking about how to answer scientific questions and follow scientific method, which, you know, is good and helpful, um, was helpful in grad school. Thank you. Just one last follow-up question. So how many years did you do um, actual, like, wet lab research versus survey research? Yeah, so I, I worked at GSK for two years, and that was all wet lab research. Um, and then um, I've been doing uh, the public health research based sort of out of the lab um, since then. So since uh, 2011. I don't know what year it is. Nine years. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yep. I'll ask a question, Megan. Yeah. You talked about a talk you gave on um, disparities in the representation of uh, 23ME samples. Can you talk to what companies might be doing or what they could do to try to rectify those um, disparities in representation? Yeah, um, you could probably speak on this better than I can, even Lana. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that's incredibly important is trying to do um, research that's really community engaged um, and that's working to rebuild um, a rightful lack of trust in the research field among underserved populations. Um, and so um, I know, Lana, we've, we've done a little bit of this thinking about how do we really listen to patients, uh, to people, um, to get them involved in research. Um, what is it that we as re the research community, because it's our responsibility to figure out how to fix this relationship that we have damaged with underserved populations so that um, we can be inclusive in the work that we're doing and um, make sure that these different discoveries that are coming out of things like the precision medicine initiatives, that they actually benefit all, all people. And so um, that's actually a, one area of research that the field of public health is really, um, really like a part of the training is around thinking about how to engage communities, how to get them to participate in research and feel like, um, and to create collaborations that are really equal researcher participant um, to help rebuild those relationships between researchers and the public and um, make sure that we as researchers are doing the type of research that's really important to patients. Hi. Um, so coming from a underserved Eastern North Carolina community, I can kind of relate to some things that you've been talking about here. And these things that the disparities that I've seen have actually made me look into genetic counseling um, to see if I could possibly help these communities that I yeah. um, see every day. 
Do you know of any programs or um, any get programs or organizations that currently help these communities? And if I could get involved in some way. Yeah, that's a great question. I would need to do some thinking, Lana. I don't know if any specific organizations come to your mind, um, but I do think that that's an incredibly important area. Um, and um, one training program that I know could be potentially interesting to you is um, at uh, the University of, of Pittsburgh, they have a actually public health genomics type of um, a master's degree where it's really a merger of genetics and public health. And so I could see that being, um, I could see that particular program potentially being interesting in terms of thinking about how to combine those two um, areas really purposefully. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any others. There's um, there's also a genetic counseling program between Johns Hopkins and and the NIH that is really great, um, and they have connections to the School of Public Health at Hopkins. Um, and there's a lot of health disparities research that happens there. Um, but in terms of actual opportunities for doing work here in North Carolina, I might have to do some, might have to do some brainstorming on that and I'd be happy to loop back. Okay, thank you, that sounds great. Yeah. I have another question. Just, <laughs> uh, um, so when you said that maybe 50% of patients actually talk to their family members, um, are there also differences in the patient population that is sharing the information with their families? Do you see that more highly educated patients are more likely to talk to their family members versus, you know, uh, on the education spectrum or, or social economic spectrum? Yeah, so I think um, one, one thing that, that actually has been sort of well documented that um, sort of issues around education and like genetic genetic literacy is important for that communication to happen and so you could imagine that it would be easier to talk to your relatives about your genetic condition if you have sort of the words to to feel like you could explain what the condition is and how it's impacting your health and how it might impact your relatives health so that's definitely um something that that you see in terms of who's talking with their relatives. It tends to be people who have this higher sort of genetic literacy level. Um, and so that's, you know, one thing that we're, we're trying to do. And in other countries, there, there are actually some really neat models where there's sort of this recognition that having patients themselves reach out to their relatives, like that's kind of a really, that's a big burden, especially for someone who's just been diagnosed with a serious condition themselves. They might be experiencing a cancer diagnosis at the same time. And so asking them to be, you know, relaying this complex information at a really difficult time might not be the best approach. And so, um, in some other countries, they actually have, like the Netherlands, 
they have a uh, up until very recently a national program where it was a, a trained person's job to help patients um, by reaching out to their relatives for them and providing that information so that it wasn't sort of placed on the patients to be able to convey this really complex information. And that's where, in countries like that, that's where we actually see the highest rates of cascade screening um, because the patients are really well supported to the point where like the work is sort of taken off of their hands. Um, in the US, it's a lot harder to do that because of our healthcare system, it's fragmented. We don't have a national registry. Um, family, it's a huge country, so families are very far geographically dispersed. Um, in part because of that, you might not have any sort of relationship with certain relatives. I know I have relatives who live very far from North Carolina who I don't talk to very much and I would feel very weird calling them with very personal health information. And so um, in some ways we have more challenges and we have less ways to support patients because we don't have, you know, somebody on a national level that's helping patients reach out to their relatives. Um, and when you think about, again, you know, the resources, the time, the the literacy level that it takes to have those conversations, um, you can imagine that's a place where you could start to see disparities emerge. Um, and that, you know, only those with the time, the resources, the literacy level are going to be reaching out to all of their relatives. So I have a question regarding that. Do you think it's only like how geographically distant people are or could it be also due to like privacy issues and things like that that the United States is more conserved and like information doesn't get dispersed easily? Oh yeah that's definitely a big issue um, and um, it's interesting because on on the one hand we do have um, protections for health information. So HIPAA um, prevents a doctor from talking with um, anyone about a patient's personal health information. Um, that's meant to keep my, you know, my health information private to me. But when you think about genetics, that actually creates a bit of a barrier for talking with relatives um, where my personal health information actually is is really relevant and important for my my relatives to know and so it's there's a little bit of a tension between especially when we're thinking about cascade screening there's a tension between how do we protect that patient's privacy um, but also do we have a duty to warn their relatives that they might be at really high risk of also having this condition when um, there are things that we can do to prevent that relative potentially from having cancer if they also have the condition. Um, so it's it's tricky, and and what makes it even trickier is every state has different laws on top of it. So we have some national laws to to um, protect privacy and to protect genetic information, but then states can have additional protections, and so. Depending on where you live, it might be harder or easier to share genetic information or for your provider to share it. Um, 
And then again, when you think about my relatives might, you know, I don't have any relatives that live in North Carolina. So um, thinking about sort of how I share my information to somebody in a different state, um, it just, it gets really complicated really fast here in the U.S. Um, and yeah, it's not doing us any favors in terms of implementation, that's for sure. So um, another follow-up question, I'm sorry, so many questions, but um, in the Netherlands, do you think it's more like, how do they, you said that it's not a burden for the patient to communicate that information, so how do you think um, they figure out who you, who your relatives are in that sense if they are communicating? Because like not everyone knows like who their relatives might be. Right. So there, you know, there are um, none of these processes, you know, none of these processes are going to be 100 percent perfect. Um, one of the things that makes uh, it particularly easy in the Netherlands is they have a national um, healthcare system and they have a national health registry. And so um, what happens is when a, a person's diagnosed with, in, in the case of the Netherlands, the, the cascade screening program that they did really well was for a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia, FH. And essentially FH just, it causes people to have really high cholesterol at a really early age. And so people suffer um, from early heart attack and, and um, uh, cardiac, um, cardiovascular disease. And so um, once the person is diagnosed to have FH, the provider, um, and this is usually the, the role of the genetic counselor um, or a genetic provider, would identify what relatives of that individual need to be contacted. And that information can be sent to this office that's in charge of reaching out to those relatives. And because there's a national registry, they have information on, on those relatives. Um, and again, the limitation being if, if the family members are across borders, I, I'm not sure how that works actually in their program. Um, I'm not sure if they uh, would be able to reach out to relatives that no longer live in the Netherlands. So there are limitations to all approaches. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. So would you say like a solution for the U.S. is to kind of implement a national registry? And if so, like how would that process go about? Yeah, so I think um, when I think about this problem, you know, there are definitely policy level issues as well as like healthcare system issues in terms of resources and their workforce issues. We need more genetic counselors. Um, so that they can have more time with patients and they can help reach out to relatives. So there are a lot of different policy, policy problems that occur sort of at a national level, a state level, and even within a healthcare system. And I think those are um, some of the issues where if we could fix those, um, they would probably have the biggest impact. Um, one of the challenges is policies can be the hardest thing to change. We as researchers might have, in terms of um, the amount of time on our hands, like it might be easier to say, all right, I'm going to put my effort into improving, you know, knowledge, or I'm going to put my effort into training um, 
a nurse, to reach out to family members. Um, that feels more easily changeable in a short time frame, um, but it's not going to have quite as big of an impact as if we could just change policies. And so I think that's why it's really important um, for researchers to be involved in um, advising policymakers and, and, and thinking about ways that we can do research that speaks to policymakers and can enact change on that level. So that while we're doing some of these patient and provider level interventions, we can also be working towards making those bigger changes that will probably have the biggest impact. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we only have uh, three minutes left and I just wanna ask a quick question. Um, what do you think the job outlook is for someone who's interested in implementation and dissemination sciences? I think it's really good. <laughs> um, right now, so the field that I'm in is actually very much growing. Um, and sort of the concept behind it is, you know, we have a lot of clinical guidelines that tell us what it is that we need to do to improve patients' health. And we have a lot of interventions that we've tested and we know they work. But the problem is we don't actually implement them into practice. Um, and so the field that I'm in is really focused on trying to understand why we in the healthcare system and in the public health sector, why it is that we're not doing the things that we know work and making sure that all patients in all settings get them. And I think in a, a constrained healthcare system with budget restraints and all of that stuff, um, thinking carefully about what we already know works and figuring out how to get it to actually get into place and work better is something that um, is of increasing interest and importance. So I think there's a lot that could be done to take what we already know works and making sure that patients actually get it. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you. Questions. Uh, maybe if all the students can join me in thanking Dr. Megan Roberts. Um, thank you. Any thank questions? you. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I don't know, Lana, if you, um, you know, feel free to share my email address if any of you ever have any questions um, about um, implementation science or going to public health school or working at GSK or working with Teach for America or any other crazy thing that I've done, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer more questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.